0: I'm excited about what the Lord uh, has laid on my heart to talk about tonight. And I, I want to go in the scripture to uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 11. And uh, I want to talk to you about a subject that uh, our world desperately needs right now. Our world is in desperate need of hope. Can I get an amen? Hope is what we really need. And so Hebrews six eleven begins to talk about the subject of hope. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope unto the end. The full assurance. Somebody say that, the full assurance. He said, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness so that you have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. I want to pause there and draw your attention to this. God has guaranteed his purpose by an oath, a promise. And listen to what he says. He says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Somebody say hope. Amen. I want to talk to you tonight about recovering hope. In our world, people need to recover hope. Church members need to recover hope. The hope that we have. Amen. Would you just join me and let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would anoint your word tonight. We pray, God, that you would minister in this place. God, that your spirit would speak. God, to the innermost man. I pray in the name of Jesus, God, that you would come and have your way in this place right now. And we ask you, Lord, to illuminate the word of life to us. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Uh, A few weeks ago, I, uh, I stumbled across... Uh, a talk on YouTube by an author named Jonathan Height ha- uh, that he gave at Colorado State University. And in it, he was detailing the mental health crisis across American college campuses and how they are affecting our culture. His book, written with another author, um, is called The Coddling of the American Mind. And in it, these two authors begin to tell the story of how they discovered a spike in anxiety, depression, and suicidal tendencies that started in about 2012. In fact, they show in the talk how, uh, how the chart just shot almost directly upward around 2012 as this generation was entering into college on college campuses. And it has continued to rise. And so the backstory of the book is actually... Fairly interesting. I, I I have to say I haven't read the book. I can't make a recommendation for everything in it. But uh, but the backstory is incredible because one of the authors named Greg Lukianoff, who uh, ran a political polling company, came to a point where he had a major bout with depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts. So much so that he had a mental breakdown and had to step away from his company and his career in order to find a way to recovery and and through his recovery process he was introduced to cognitive behavioral therapy Um, just a, a brush over of that is is cognitive behavioral therapy helps you to recognize irrational thinking and emotions and give a name to them and by giving a name to them you disempower them from controlling your life and so he learns in this process to identify the irrational thinking, and the roles that it was playing in his depression. And so when he finally recovered and came back to work around 2010, by 2012 he had discovered that many of the same types of irrational thinking that led to his own breakdown had become prevalent in college campuses and in the political culture that had not been there when he left. And so we determined to figure out what happened on American college campuses. And so they started doing a series of studies and surveys to find out. And and of all the things, one of the major uh, things that was related to the spike of anxiety and depression around 2012 was found in these entry interviews that they gave to students all across the world. And one of the questions that... Um, all these universities ask people is at what age were you allowed to go outside alone at? Now when you rewind back from 2012 back to say 2000, the age was five, four, six in that range. But this group who was more depressed, their ages ranged, ranged in 8, 9, 10 years old and they figured out that what, what had happened to these college students was that they had been raised in a marked, markedly different way than previous generations. And, and, and the point that they are making in this is that these children had been coddled. You know, there, there are two types of parenting. There is parenting where you prepare the child for the road. In other words, you, you don't try to make life smooth for them, you try to prepare them For the ups and the downs and the bumps and the bruises. And then there is a different kind of parenting that unfortunately my generation and those a little older than me tend to to lean towards. And that is that you prepare the road for the child. We want to make sure that that little little Bubby when he wakes up his breakfast is nice and hot because we don't want him to have a rough morning. (laughs) Anybody else raised on cereal? (laughs) Listen. I can make a bowl of cereal, I can't cook a thing, but I can, I can survive on cereal. Hot breakfast for little buddy and, and, and make sure that his clothes are laid out and pressed just right and, and everything is done for him so that he doesn't know, have to know how to do anything for himself and, and when there's a problem with the teacher, little buddy doesn't get a whooping when he gets home, mom picks up the phone and dad pick up the phone and they call the teacher. And say, what are you doing wrong? My my, my child is a smart child. (laughs) Amen. And mine either. (laughs) I wasn't raised this way for sure. But they discovered that, that these kids who got to college and struggled with anxiety and depression had grown up in an atmosphere where everybody was trying to make everything easy for them. And so they never knew or learned how to overcome how to come through adversity. Now, y'all don't tell the youth and, and all of them back there what I'm preaching tonight. This is just between us adults in here. But it's impressive to me and impacting to me that these children, because they never faced adversity, when they face it as an adult, they have irrational thoughts, the kind of thoughts that we hear. In politics, commonly today, is one area where when somebody says something that I don't agree with, that it's a, they literally believe that it is a danger and a threat to their life. If someone comes on their college campus and speaks about Christianity or some other subject that these people don't agree with, they feel literally threatened like they are going to die. Because it is the coddling of the American mind. And and I don't say this to wade into politics, but we we need to understand what kind of world that we're dealing with. This generation is struggling with depression, anxiety, and fragile mental states at a level that was unmatched by previous generations. Now, some of this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to share it anyways because I feel like it's something we need to understand. is, Is there... They have coined a term in in these studies called anti-fragility. Now, we know what fragile is. It's it's a carton of eggs. If you drop it, it's done, right? Uh, But there are some things that are anti-fragile. In other words, the more pressure you put on them, the stronger they get. The more able they get. One of those things is the human bone because... Uh, A human's bones, if you take an astronaut into outer space where there is less gravity and less pressure for too long of a period of time, he has problems when he returns because his bones grow more brittle and weak because they have not been exposed to the pressure of our gravity here on Earth. And so in living under lesser pressure, they grow weaker. The bones do. But conversely, living in greater pressure they get stronger. Bones are anti-fragile because the more pressure you put on them, the stronger they get. And and so uh, they discovered that rates of anxiety, depression and self-harm began rising around this 2012 mark and that they kept rising steadily right through 2018 when they have their last reports and data out. Listen, I'm, I'm not gonna get into all the statistics but it is astronomical 60% more likely than your generation is this generation to have major depression or suicidal thoughts. 60 and 70% especially among young women. One of these reasons is because of the pressures of social media and the message that culture is pushing at them. And so overall, what we find out through this book and through these authors is that we're living in a world where people are not prepared for the difficulties, the troubles and the trials that every one of us will face. All these stats show us what we inherently can see, that we have created a culture in which people are growing more hopeless by the hour. You see, God is the source of hope. Somebody say that, God is the source of hope. In Job 8-11, 13 in the Living Bible says this it says those who forget God have no hope Those who forget God have no hope in a culture that is forgetting God We are seeing people who have no hope and so they are ending their lives early. They are depressed. They are anxious They don't know what tomorrow holds because those who forget God have no hope and so listen as we drift from God, both personally and as a society, what we do is we lose our grip on hope. Because the two are closely connected. The more God that I have in my life, the more hope I have in my life. The closer to God that I get, the bigger, the stronger, the greater my hope grows. The closer I draw near to the presence of God, the more I believe that he is with me, that he is for me, that I am not alone, that there is one who's bigger and greater than the problem that I'm going through. But on the other side, the less God there is in my life, the less hope there is in my life. And the more I drift from the things of God, the smaller and the weaker and the dimmer that my hope will grow and so the level of our hope is often a status indicator of our soul. If you are feeling hopeless, it is because you have in some way disconnected or become distanced from God, disenchanted with his promises, disillusioned with his plan, even disconnected from his power because hope is always coming from God God is the source of hope I wrote this down I heard it and got it from Rick Warren but it was so good I could not pass up sharing it with you tonight he asked the question what happens when a culture forgets God what happens listen to this follow quickly he says when culture forgets God wealth is idolized truth is minimized life is trivialized abortion is legalized. Television is vulgarized. Advertising is sensualized. Everything is sexualized and then commercialized. Our consciences are desensitized. Education is secularized. Races are polarized. Tragedies are politicized. Sports are scandalized. Morals and ethics become liberalized in entertainment, crime, is sensationalized Immorally, immor- immor- uh, immorality is popularized drugs legitimized sin is glamorized courts are paralyzed the breakup of the family is rationalized manners become uncivilized Christians are demonized and God is marginalized it's no wonder that people are struggling to find hope in our world because as our culture drifts further from God our hope grows dimmer and dimmer it's no wonder that in a increasingly secularized society that suicide, uh, that suicide and depression and anxiety and, and pills and and all of this stuff is increasing without measure what the world really needs is some hope. What people, your neighbors, what they really need is hope. What kids in our college campuses really need is hope. We have a world that is drowning and desperate for hope. And so I want to talk about for a little bit, what is hope, what is hope? You see, there, there are three kinds of hope that I want to talk about, just right, right quick. First, there's wishful hope. Anybody ever have wishful hope? When you're running late to work and you hope that you hit all greens? <laughs> Let me tell you something. If you, if you ever drive 165, it is wishful hope. <laughs> it's wishful hope. There's no basis in reality for this kind of hope. I hope, I hope that... Uh, A billionaire will come by and just bless me one day with with a million or two dollars i hope yeah you can hope all you want (laughs) but that ain't gonna pay the bills right john maxwell he said hope is not a strategy (laughs) and he's talking about wishful hope he said hope hope is great but it's not a strategy and what he's talking about is that that wishful hope that man I, i hope my grades come back good well maybe That really depends on you right i I hope i hope that life turns out right i hope there's wishful hope which is not rooted in any way in reality then there is expectant hope expectant hope is is hope that that is reasonable when a woman becomes pregnant she's what she's expecting that's expectant hope it's not guaranteed because we we all know the tragedy of miscarriage and, and many even in this room have experienced that but but there's a reason and an expectation that something will happen that that a baby will come along that there is expectant hope and so in other words it's hope that's built like like for instance the hope that if I pay my bill uh, to the electric company that the lights will still stay on that's a expectant hope I, I have a reasonable expectation because of time and experience but then there is certain hope somebody say certain hope certain hope is this it's biblical hope and biblical hope is different than the other two kinds of hope because erdman's bible dictionary in defining hope says this while modern connotations include shades of uncertainty associated with a desired outcome akin to wishful thinking the biblical understanding of hope is a much deeper concept significantly uh, that contributes significantly to the worldview of biblical faith. Included in hope is an expectation of the future, trust in attaining that future, patience while awaiting that future, the desirability of the associated benefits, and confidence in the divine promises. You see, ordinarily when we express hope, we're expressing uncertainty. But this is not the biblical meaning. Biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather biblical hope is confident expectation and desire for, something, for God to do something good in the future because He has said that He will. It is confident expectation, biblical hope. Not only desires something good, but it expects it to happen. And not only expects it to happen, it's confident that it will happen. Hebrews 11.1 one says this, Now faith, listen, is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. You see, faith is, I, I looked up the word there, where the assurance. It's, it means a substructure. Like like the pillars underneath a structure that hold it up. And, And what it's saying there is faith is a substructure of things hoped for. In other words, I believe and I hope and I'm reaching for things that I have not yet seen. I have a conviction about things that I have not seen. Hope springs out of faith. And listen, you cannot have faith if you do not have hope. You do not have faith if you do not have hope. Because faith is what's holding hope up. Faith is a substructure of hope, the things that you're hoping for. And listen, Hebrews 6.11, he says this, he says, we desire, in our text, he said, each one of you to show you, uh, uh, for each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Twice we see those words, full assurance associated with hope. The word there is plerophoria in the Greek, which means full conviction, firm uh, persuasion, an assurance, a confident expectation. You see, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the purpose of his letter is that the reader would have the full assurance of hope until the end. Why? He says because when people lose hope, they lose a willingness to continue. Anybody ever done this? You started something and then you figured out This is never going to happen, and so you quit. I I was thinking back to the ice storm we had last year. Now when I lived in Flagstaff, I had all the equipment and we had a lot of snow and ice and I'd go out there with my snow shovel and I'd, I'd break it up, it was no big deal. And I thought, well, I'll do the same thing, I'll clear our driveway after, you know, three or four days of melting ice and it was thick. And I went out there and I worked for about 10 or 15 minutes and I broke my shovel. And I thought, man, I don't have the right tools, and I kept working and working, and you know, I got tired and hot and sweaty underneath all my clothes. I said, man, I will never get this done. I'm going in the house. <laughs> Anybody ever just gone in the house, got tired of it, sick of it, lost hope? <laughs> It'll never happen. At this rate, I would have still been out there trying to break ice. The summer coming and spring coming, out, had a better chance of breaking up that ice than I did. So you know what I said? I said, I'm out of here, Jack. I'm going to go put my feet up. And, and listen. Listen to what he says here. I, I love this because he says, why, why do, do, does he want us to have the full assurance of hope? He said, so that you may not be sluggish, which means lazy or slow to move. So that you may not be lazy or slow to move, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises do you know what a lazy christian is it's a hopeless christian somebody who tried to reach a a, a few people and it didn't go like they thought it would and so they decided i cannot do this i'm not able to do this and so they set the shovel aside and said i'm going over here and i'm sitting down an inactive christian a sluggish christian is a christian who has lost hope I'll I'll push the ticket even further a Christian who does not pray is a Christian who has lost hope if you struggle to pray it's because you have lost hope that God will answer your prayers that's why you don't pray He said, I want you to have the full assurance of hope so that you will not be sluggish. But he said, I want you to imitate the fathers of faith that he's going to reveal to us just a few chapters later in Hebrews 11, who through faith and through patience inherit the promises of God. He said, why did they hang on? Abraham, why did you hang on when there was decades between the promise and the fulfillment? It's because Abraham had hope. Moses, why did you keep pressing on when Pharaoh kept saying no, even at miracle signs and wonders? It's because Moses, if he were standing here today, he would tell you, it's because I never lost hope in my God. I never lost faith that God would perform what he had promised to me. And so when we, when we grow lazy and sluggish and we don't want to get involved, it's revealing that we have lost our hope. Can I get an amen? That's good stuff. Because every time I get lazy, I pray that it's a warning system to my soul that says you've gotten disconnected from your hope. You've grown distant from God. You've got to get back close to the source of your hope and let your hope live again. And let your hope breathe again. You used to lay hands on people and expect them to be healed, but now you're afraid to pray. That means you've got to get close to the source again. That means you've got to draw near to God again. And if you get close to the source of hope, then all of a sudden you'll have a desire to do the work of the kingdom of God. He said, so that you be not sluggish, but be imitators. They need the assurance of hope so that they will inherit God's promises. And you can only do that through faith and patience. You see, when you have hope, you are willing to continue pressing on. When you have hope, you trust that it may not be today. It may not even be tomorrow. But God will come through on what He has promised me. And so I've got to recover my hope. I've got to get my hope back. Listen to what he says. He continues teaching here in verse 13. He says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, what did he do? He swore by himself. You see, when when you make an oath, you swear by someone greater than you. When you you sign a mortgage, there's a company backing you, (laughs) saying, we got the money, (laughs) and so you can buy the house. It's an oath, you, you, anybody ever signed an oath? You swear by one greater, right? And, and God has none greater than him, so he, the Bible says this, it says he swore a promise to Abraham by himself. He made an oath upon his own reputation, upon his own character, upon himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply. Do you know what this means? It means that God is saying that Abraham, if I am really God, If I am who I say I am, then I will surely bless you and multiply you. If I am really God, then I will do what I said I would do. And thus Abraham, listen, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. How did he do that? Because Romans shows us that he never gave up hope. The Bible says he staggered not at the promises of God. He did not think that it was impossible, though his body was old and though Sarah's womb was yet dead, though it was barren. Abraham said, you know, it's really not about how old I am or about how old she is. Now, you got to know there had to be some days where he looked over and said, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to do it. There were probably a lot of days where it didn't look like it was going to happen. Decades between the promise and the fulfillment. But the Bible says that Abraham did not stagger at the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith. The Bible says he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's room. Listen, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Listen to this. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That sounds a lot like hope. Abraham was fully convinced. He had an expectation, a confident expectation that God would come through. And so... He said, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly, not to Abraham, but to us, to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. That is set before us. God swore by himself. And the Bible says God cannot lie. And so when he gave that word to Abraham, it was an immutable, unchangeable fact that would unfold in human history. So that when Abraham looked forward, he did not look forward wondering what would happen, but he looked forward expecting something to happen. And he said, this hope we have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's pointing to where Jesus entered in behind the curtain and purchased our salvation. A hope Jesus went into a place that we could not go. So that we could have what we did not have. And he refers to this and he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Do you know what anchors do? Does anybody know what anchors do? Anybody ever used an anchor? A while back, my, uh, my trolling motor wasn't working so well. I tried fishing without a trolling motor. But I had an anchor in the boat, so I dropped the anchor because I wanted to stay on the tree where I thought I would catch fish. Newsflash, I didn't catch any fish. <laughs> but the anchor held. The anchor worked. The, the purpose of an anchor is to keep a boat from drifting. You see, here's what hope does, is hope keeps you connected to God. It keeps you from drifting. You know, in life, when you start losing hope, and you start not expecting God to come through, and not expecting God to unfold your purpose and your calling, and and you lose that expectation of what God has promised and prepared for you down the road, here's what you start doing. You, You start getting distracted by the things of the world. You start getting caught up in the lesser things of life, the trivial cares of life. When you lose hope, you start drifting. And and when we stop expecting the good outcome, we drift, we get distracted. Our life begins to be pulled by the currents of culture. And we're pulled in our opinions to start thinking, speaking, and acting like the world. And not just the culture, but our feelings. When we become disconnected from God, you know what becomes our God often? There's a couple things we look to. One is government. We start looking to government to answer all of our problems because we can't think of anything higher. And we start expecting and praying, Lord, send another (laughs) Stimmy. Get us a check, God. We start drifting. And looking to other things. But here's the, here's the real one I wanna talk about. We start relying on our feelings rather than the facts of faith. And all of a sudden, we get offended in our spirit and, and, and God starts pulling us away from the body of Christ and he starts isolating us and, and we get in our feelings. Well, I just don't think that God really cares if I go get sloshed on the weekend as long as I show up on Sunday. And, and what happens when you get disconnected from your anchor is you start drifting. Anybody ever been on the beach with a current underneath you and you you thought you were close, but you looked up and without even realizing it, you were hundreds of yards down the beach. Can't tell you how many times that's happened. That's what drifting is, is hope keeps us connected to God. It keeps us connected to correct and true doctrine. The Bible says, be not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. What happens when wind blows on a boat? I've been with pastor many times when the wind was too high. You ha- if in order to stay in the same spot, you've got to fight it. He got power poles, that's like an anchor on steroids. You've got to put down the power poles of the spirit you got to use the troller. you got to do everything you can to stay in the same spot when the wind of false doctrine starts blowing against you. And listen, this is what happens when we lose hope and we stop seeing the goodness of God. We start drifting and, and we don't see the importance of the most important things anymore. And now church is really about the songs that I like and the presentation that I make. And listen, there are churches everywhere that have drifted from what really matters because we get disconnected from hope well if i preach they won't respond anyways that's a good way that's a good road to end up just trying to entertain folks because when you when you lose hope you get disconnected amen unless listen second hope or helps you to endure what what is the second thing an anchor does an anchor i i, I didn't really know this but I was blown away by this. An anchor provides stability in the storm. In Acts 27, when Paul and his crew were about to make shipwreck, the Bible says they threw out four anchors in the storm. And the reason they did so was because those anchors could reach beyond the wind and the waves down to some stability and grab onto the stability. How many of you have ever seen an anchor? Some of them have sawtooths on the bottom or, or a hook on the bottom. And that's so that they'll grab into. In fact, these large ships when they when they set the anchor, they drop the anchor and then the helmsman, the captain has to maneuver the boat so that he sets the anchor on something solid. So what happens is when the storm hits, the stability that is below is transferred by the cord, by the chain, up to the boat. And you don't feel the winds and the waves quite as much when your anchor's down. And so it brings you stability and security in the storm. Why do some people make shipwreck of their faith? Because they lose hope. When we lose hope, the waves hit harder. Anybody ever heard someone say, that hits different? When you don't see God bringing you out, it feels different than when you have hope and confident expectation that this didn't come to stay, but it came to pass. You see, anchors provide stability. And and when we don't have the anchor of hope, the wind feels stronger. The waves seem larger. And when a ship isn't anchored, it has no stability. And so it will experience storms harder than it would have if it were anchored. Do you understand this? When you have trust and hope in God, that the storms that come on your life, they don't hit you like they hit people in the world. They don't hit you like people who haven't found what you've found. They don't feel the same as what people are going through. Now listen, you may go through stuff in your family and it will hurt. And, and I am not minimizing that. But what I'm telling you is when you hope in God and when you trust in God to perform every promise of his word, even death cannot rock your boat too heavy because you are anchored to something that is more stable, that is stronger you see, hope helps you see beyond the circumstances. Hope links you beneath the waters to solid ground. The Hebrew word for, cor- uh, for, for anchor literally means a cord. That's what it is. And when they would drop the anchor out of the boat, that cord was the link to something more stable. You see, The anchor reaches beyond the boat to a place that the waves cannot affect. The anchor reaches beyond the storm to where the winds cannot blow. And it transfers the stability of that place to the storm-tossed boat that I'm living in right now. And so hope is the recognition that there is something beyond my reach that can secure me right now. Hebrews 6 tells us what that is. It is the immutable and unchangeable character and word of God. He swears by himself. And the Bible is telling us that our hope is tied to something that cannot be moved, to something that cannot be shaken. Listen, when Jesus came in Matthew chapter 14, they were tossed to and fro by the winds and the waves. But the Bible said he came walking on the water, and the winds and the waves did not impact him. In other words, they were reaching out to something that was not impacted. That is the picture of hope. The reason we can find stability and faith, even in the worst of times. Is because we have a God who is unchanged, unmoved, not shaken, not caught by surprise. You see, hope was designed for that. It was de- designed for stormy seasons. You see, hope was made for that moment. That's what an anchor's for. And the Bible says hope is an anchor of our soul. Whenever our soul starts to drift, how do we get back in alignment. We, we go back to the goodness of God. We go back to the greatness of God. We go back to the, uh, to the faithfulness of God to his own word. You see, even if, if this life, I am destroyed, H- how did the apostles have hope? They, they lived their life in persecution and, and ultimately all but one of them were cursed, are or killed or martyred for their faith. Their hope wasn't in this world. It wasn't in this mess and in this storm, but they had a hope that was able to reach beyond to an unchangeable and unshakable promise. It was the anchor that gave them stability in the storm. You know, the book book of Job is an incredible picture of suffering. We often think of Job in in terms of suffering, amen? It's an incredible picture of suffering, but but really, Job is the story of a man's search for hope in a broken world. Job's tragedy is the perfect canvas on which God begins to paint a depiction of hope in the darkness. We know the story, and I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time delving into the depths of it, but in the early chapters of Job, we know that that he loses everything, right? Right? All of his children die in a matter of days. His sheep, his flocks, his herds, his wealth is destroyed. His homes are hit by tornadoes and whirlwinds. And, and literally, it's as if a bomb exploded in Job's life. One day he is wealthy, he is doing good, he is blessed. And the next day, the hedge is uh, removed from Job. And the Bible says that the enemy, Satan, comes in and does a work on Job's life. Job doesn't know the eternal consequences of what is going on. All Job knows is the suffering. And his tragedy begins to show us this picture of hope. After Psalms, Job is the book in the Bible that uses the word hope the most. Because hope is built for adversity. 19 different times hope is mentioned in Job. But but let us look past his tragedy for a moment, at his hope. There are two responses that are just so clear in Job that I wanna highlight. Is in the second chapter of Job, the Bible says Job's wife comes to him. After all this terrible has befallen him. And she looks at Job. Now, now here's something you have to remember. We we've preached a lot about Job's wife and we've given her a hard time. But she just lost all of her babies. Not one. All of her babies. Wiped out. Her house, her everything, everything taken. She lost everything Job lost. And she comes to Job and she says, Job, why don't you just curse God? and die. Why don't you curse God and die? Now if you look at Job, the reason that he was so faithful to God says in the very opening scriptures of Job that he feared. Every day he made sacrifice because he feared that his children would curse God and have no recourse. So Job was determined to live a life that would glorify and fear God as a bridge for his children to find redemption. And now his wife comes to him and she says to Job, Job, would you curse God and die? It's over. Your story is over, Job. All the blessing that you used to believe in, all the expectation of God to do good things in your life is over. Would you curse God and die? She lost hope quickly. She experienced that same unimaginable nightmare. And in her grief, she's ready to curse God and die. Why? because she saw no future, no hope, no recovery, no restoration, only the pain of their loss. But somehow in that darkness, Job managed to hold on to his hope. His hopeful expectation is found in Job 19. The Bible says that Job said, for I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last day, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, speaking of the boils, upon his own body, he said, in my flesh. You see, often we think of this, that that he's talking about resurrection, but he's not. He says, after these boils in my body, in my flesh shall I see God. He said, it doesn't matter what's happened to me. It doesn't matter what I've gone through. He says, I know my Redeemer lives. You know what a Redeemer is? Is, is Go quickly to the, the story of Ruth and Boaz. You know, Boaz's husband dies. A, 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 or not Boaz. That would, that's not allowed in the Bible. <laughs> Ruth's husband dies. Ruth's husband dies, not Boaz. But she goes and she finds Boaz, and Boaz is a relative of Ruth's husband. And so the Bible says that that Boaz comes along and he redeems Ruth. Because what he's doing is because he's related to her now deceased husband. Is he marries her and takes her as his own because he is preserving the legacy of his kinsman, And so he is the kinsman redeemer. And this is what Job is referring to. He says, you see, me and God, we are not just passing acquaintances. He says, but I know my Redeemer lives. I know that I, that He will stand on the earth at the last day. And that in my flesh, I will see God. Job is not wistful. He is certain that in the end, God will make everything right. Right. He will stand at the last day. He will vindicate the days of Job's life. And so Job, in spite of the horrific suffering, managed to hold on to an anchor that was beyond the ashes of his current situation, unshakable and unmovable, undeterred by circumstances around him. Psalm 27, 13 says, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. New King James Version says it this way, I would have lost heart, I would have lost hope, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. See, that's what many people are missing in our world today. It's what many people in church pews are missing is an expectation to see the goodness of God. Because they've been through things and because they've failed and they've fallen down, they've lost an expectation to see the goodness of God. They've lost their hope. But Job managed to hold on to it. Listen, in the close of this, I want to put up a graphic and I want to just show you this. I don't have time to teach it or or to get into it, but I just want to show you this. Because people are losing heart. They're losing hope and they've lost sight of the goodness of God, but I want to I show you a way that you can recover it. So they did a study of why people re- lose hopeless, uh, or lose hope, and, and why they experience hopelessness. This was a survey that was done a few years back, and, and I'm just going to go through them quickly. People lose hope because they feel abandoned and alone. Whenever family's gone, whenever people are gone, uh, abandoned by a spouse or relationship, friends, families. Whenever people feel alone, they lose hope in their life. Second, when life seems out of control. Anybody ever feel like your life is no longer in your control? People lose hope. I heard the testimony the other day of a guy who, who ended up killing a judge and a bailiff in a courtroom because he was facing a life sentence and his life was no longer in his control and he lost hope and lashed out when life seems out of control. Three, when you don't see a purpose to life. Anybody ever been going through something and you said, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand why I'm going through this, Lord. I I don't understand it. There's no explanation uh, for me, Lord. So when you don't see a purpose, when you are grieving a loss, oftentimes when you lose someone very close to you, you, you can lose hope. When you don't have what you need, people in great poverty, and people who don't have the things that they need in life. And, and, and maybe it's emotional connection. Maybe it's, it's, it's food and uh, maybe it's wealth. Or maybe it's, it's just the relationships and you don't feel like you have what you need. You lose hope. You lose hope when you've fallen into sin and you've done something wrong. Anybody ever felt hopeless like I'll never get over this struggle that I'm facing. I'll never get past it. When, when you've done something wrong, you lose hope. When you're deeply wounded by someone, you can lose hope. When you have been abused, people who have suffered violence and abuse can lose hope. And so they, they curl in on life and they give up on the future. When you're pulled in the wrong direction, you can lose hope. When you seems like your life is drifting far from your purpose. When you're hounded by fear. And fear dictates every life. If I do this, what, will that happen and I'll lose this and everybody will leave me. And, and, and you can begin to lose hope when you're hounded by fear. And finally, when it looks like defeat. When it looks like there is no answer. When it looks like the enemy has overcome. And the enemy has won. It's easy in your spirit to say, I guess it's not going to end up very good after all. But what I want you to see is that in the Lord's Prayer, there is an answer for every one of these reasons for hopelessness. And it comes back to this, when we move back to our source of hope, God can begin to restore hope. Our Father in heaven reveals to us that my loving Father will never abandon me. I am not alone. Uh, Even if I have all of my family has passed from this life and I'm all alone on this, I have a Father in heaven. I am not alone. Second, God's power is greater than any problem. When life seems out of control, we pray, Hallowed be thy name. I don't have time to teach on it, but there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power when we speak the name of Jesus. Third, when I don't see a purpose, well, I can pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Because God fits everything into his plan. Romans eight twenty eight says, all things work to go- together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called to, uh, 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 according to his purpose. God has a purpose. When you don't have what you need, here's what you pray. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Because God has promised to meet all Of our needs when I've been sinning and I've done something wrong when I've failed we pray father forgive us of our sins forgive us our trespasses when we been steeped in sin the Bible says if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive our sins we pray forgive our sins when we're wounded God promises that he will settle the score one day and so what do we do is we forgive others As we have been forgiven forgive us our sins and forgive as we forgive those who have sinned against us in other words we put it in God's hand and God says I am the God of justice I will deal with it one day when I've lost hope because I've been pulled in the wrong direction God has promised to help me he says pray this lead us not into temptation when when it feels like I can never get past the temptations in my life there's an answer for me in the Lord's Prayer when I'm hounded by fear There's the revelation that Jesus in me is greater than any other power. He says, deliver us from evil. And stand with me as I read the last one. When it looks like defeat, we pray this. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the glory. And thine is the power forever. In other words, this is not the end of the story. And as we pray that prayer, we can begin to recover hope. Not, you know, most of us have recited the prayer. How many of you have ever recited the Lord's Prayer? We've recited it. But what we need to do is we need to pray it. Listen, I believe God wants to give us all hope. How many of you believe that tonight? Would you lift your hands and let's pray together? God, we thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you restore hope. People that have been struggling, God, we pray, Lord, that you would let hope arise. God, for our champion is not dead, you are alive. I pray tonight, God, in the name of Jesus, that you would let someone get the message of hope. Let them get a breath of hope. God, let somebody find that anchor in their storm. God, as we draw near to you, let hope and good expectation of good things come back into our heart, back into our mind. God, help us to trust that all things really are working together for our good. God, help us to see that this is not our story, ultimately, it's your story, and you will receive glory in the end for it all God I pray that you would redeem our minds from drifting and restore hope in the depths of our soul in Jesus name how many of you receive that tonight amen ushers would you come forward at this time amen somebody turn to your neighbor and say I'm recovering hope I'm recovering hope how many of you feel like you need a little more hope in your life amen I believe God is going to do great things Amen. We need to tell ourselves that every day. God is going to do great things in my family. God is going to do great things on my job. God is going to do great things in my relationships. God is going to use me. God is going to build me up. God is going to help me. Amen.